Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. In the battle against anti-vaping forces, no one is more tenacious than Michelle Minton, senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. As a researcher and writer on regulatory issues, Michelle has delivered a plethora of hard-hitting articles and reports exposing corrupt motivations and tactics behind the most egregious efforts to destroy vaping. Michelle, it's great to have you back on RegWatch. Always a pleasure. So the last time you were on the show, just over a year ago, we were discussing, among other things, Michael Bloomberg and his Dr. Evil plan to take control over what a person is allowed to put in their body and the vape mail ban, which was about to go into effect. So let's start there. What's been the impact of the vape mail ban? It's been pretty brutal. You know, a few places are closing down just because it, they can't get the products that, you know, real shops, brick and mortar shops are closing because they cannot get the products that they need to sell to consumers, you know, IRL in real life. And then a lot of companies who have product who are, you know, sending their products from overseas, they don't know how to navigate the, the mail, the regulatory structure now. So they've just decided to completely exit the U.S. market. I know Logic, one of the only e-cigarettes that's been approved by the FDA has decided to completely end all of its online sales. And there's a few other companies that are kind of in the process trying to figure out, they're trying different methods at the moment, but those seem to be getting, those options seem to be getting smaller and smaller every day. So for just the regular vaping consumer, their access then must be, you know, pretty severely restricted. Yeah, I mean, you know, for the lucky people who live near larger cities, there's still options. For people who are in rural areas, it's getting much more difficult to find a, a physical shop and now cut off from the online sales. It can be kind of impossible. So I think there's a lot of people who are engaging in stockpiling, which I, makes perfect sense because if you can only, if you have to take a two hour, three hour trip to get to the vape shop, you, you know, you're going to try and only do that once, once a couple of, every few months, perhaps. So some businesses have closed. Do we know if any vapors have gone back to smoking? You know, we don't have any numbers on that, obviously, for one thing, just because few people in public health care to even examine that question, but but also because it's just, it's all so new that even if there is data being collected, we don't have access to that yet. As far as I'm aware, I think most people, you know, the e-cigarette user, the tobacco harm reduction community is pretty strong. Uh, so the people who have already been plugged in are helping each other and figuring out how to uh, work with what we have so that people can still have access to the products that they need. How hard hit then has the retail landscape in the U.S. been over the past year with everything dropped on it, not just the vape mail ban? I mean, with the pandemic, with uh, states states and countries refusing to consider vapor shops, essential businesses, allowing them to stay open, cutting off online sales uh, with just the all the economic pressures, then what you have happening with states and local authorities trying to ban certain products or certain flavors, it's, you know, we have to, if you have a vape shop that you go to, you have to give them a million thanks for managing to stay open through all of this because it must have been extremely difficult and it doesn't look like it's getting any easier for them. So a lot of shops have closed over the pandemic and I know some are still holding on, but it's it's not, a, the future isn't clear. Well, and where are those shops getting the product? Because obviously in the last year, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has come down with rulings on 99% of the pre-market tobacco applications, which were under review, which they denied issuing then marketing denial orders. So what impact has that had on availability of product? 
Yeah, I mean, so far, you know, all of the ones that are, all of the applications that are still awaiting, you know, denial or approval, let's be honest, probably denial, they're still allowed to be sold. Uh, so far, the FDA has chosen not to use its enforcement authority, but the ones that have already received uh, MDOs, marketing denial orders, I believe they still have, you know, depending on when those were issued, they still have some time. So for example, the most recent devastating MDO that was issued was for the MyBlue products. So MyBlue, the pods, uh, FDA issued a, a denial and they think, I think they can still stay on the market for another 30 or 60 days at this point. Uh, and depending on what they do legally, you know, they could challenge if, if, if they, you know, if they try some kind of legal challenge, they might get extra time until there's a final decision. But at the moment, I think vape shops are just relying on the products that haven't yet been denied. Why was the My Blue denial so extraordinary? It was extraordinary because it's one of the largest, you know, it's the biggest tobacco company at this point. You know, it, it had the largest market share of products that have been denied so far. And for the fact that it is a pod-based version, you know, um, they have a, a Fontum, which makes the blue products. They have other applications in that haven't yet been denied, but they're for their much older um, cartridge-based products. So, you know, the 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 pod-based system being denied, and not just the, all of the flavors, including tobacco, but the actual device itself being denied a marketing order is, uh, is a potential very bad signal from FDA about what it's going to do with all of the other products. And Blue has been around. Um, the My Blue products have been a, you know, one of the longest-running products on the market. So, you know, and the fact that it is from a major tobacco company everyone expected that they would have the lawyers and the scientists and the science and the money to, to get through the process. And the fact that FDA, you know, we know that FDA has very limited resources. They don't want to deal with, you know, 5,000 vapor companies. They want to deal with a handful of large companies, which usually means big tobacco. So the fact that FDA denied one of the largest company's products is a bad signal. Cause you know, at this point you're wondering what is it going to take to get products through. We have a few RJ Reynolds products and then we have Logic, which isn't even available anymore. So, you know, we're kind of left wondering because the FDA hasn't given any explanation about why the, why they denied those products. So, you know, you have a lot of customers, you know, a big portion of the, of the e-cigarette users out there who are using pod-based uh, models are using MyBlue. And now they're looking at the future saying, is this about to just disappear soon? Well, it certainly looks that way. And, and no matter what jurisdiction, whether it's Canada, the U.S., and other markets, that there's been a strong vaping economy, it's removed the stability. So if, you're, if you are a smoker, you wouldn't, you'd be crazy to quit using a vaping product right now because you have no idea whether if it's going to be around. I mean, you know, one of the things that really uh, stymies people's quit attempts is instability is, um, you know, emotional distress, financial distress. Again, you know, thank your vapor shops who've made it through the pandemic. But for all of those former smokers who've managed to continue vaping throughout the pandemic, you should pat yourself on the back because this has been an incredibly stressful time. Personally, socially, a lot of people are losing jobs or they're worried they're going to lose jobs. And those are exactly the moments where a lot of people will return to smoking because it's comforting, it's easier, you know, it doesn't matter about what it, you know whether this business is essential or not. Pretty much all of those essential corner shops are still selling cigarettes. You never have to wonder, is my delivery going to come today? Is it going to take a month, two months? 
is this product not going to be available anymore? Am I going to invest, you know, 10, 20, $30 into a new system only to have it disappear a year from now and then have to start all over again? You know, it's, it's, I really feel uh, badly for all of the people who are involved in this, for people who, especially older users who aren't willing to go the route of, you know, making it at home, finding the liquid products, mixing, testing, all of that. People who just want something as easy as it used to be when you smoked. They're the ones who are really going to suffer the most. It's certainly a lot easier. So easy, in fact, to feed your nicotine addiction through combustible cigarettes that you don't even really totally realize you're addicted anymore. It's just, you know, integrated in your life. But with all of these problems uh, with with coming to get your products for vaping, you really do kind of feel like you're you're having to really scrounge around for your, not your high, but at least your fix. Yeah, and, and you know, and it's also one of the things that, you know, during the pandemic, there were a, a lot of people in public health were very worried about the levels of drinking. And, you know, I would hear from, because that's another topic that I cover. A lot of people are like, Christ, you know, just leave me alone. Like, let me enjoy it. Yes, I'm drinking a little bit more than I normally would, but it is such a stressful time. I, you know, people are trying any way to soothe themselves. And that's, again, you know, talking about like Western medicine, everything has to come from a doctor. Health is the way we prescribe it to be. That's not the way it really works. You know, the way people deal with their health is myriad. And a lot of it isn't what you would consider to be a doctor prescribed medicine or treatment plan or therapy. A lot of it is zooming with friends or having an extra cup of coffee or cup of tea or an extra vape or an extra drink at night. And those things, you know, your doctor may say, no, 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 I don't like that. But that's what helps your mental health and your mental mental health improves your physical health. So this idea that we are further driving people, to, they have to expend more energy, more physical and mental energy, more money and more time to just do the simple things that used to give them a little bit of comfort and a little bit of pleasure every day. That is going to make things a lot like significantly worse for a lot of people. So with regard to FDA's uh, MDOs, the marketing denial orders hitting, you know, 99%, that does leave Juul left still undecided. What do we know about that? Uh, we don't know anything. Uh, what we can suspect. So I suspect that FDA is putting off its Juul decision for as long as it absolutely can, because they know that no matter what decision they make, there are going to be lawsuits and there's going to be a controversy. And it's a rule of thumb at FDA, it seems like at most health agencies, to put off controversial decisions if you can. Uh, so I think they're really going to leave Juul till the absolute last. Now, for those devices that they do approve, um, we're finding, of course, that it's only tobacco flavors. So is it pretty clear now that there won't be anything but tobacco flavors approved in the United States? It's not clear, but again, I think what they're doing is delaying a decision on flavors until they have to make that decision. So they uh, they really can't just say, we're not gonna approve flavors. They would have to issue rules in order to do that. They would have to justify that. And that's a big long process. So I think they're waiting to make that clear until they've, uh, until they've dealt with all of the tobacco, all of the non-tobacco flavors, or I'm sorry, all of the tobacco flavors, they're gonna deal with those first, and then they're gonna delay, delay, delay on menthol, and on flavors. And I think they might be waiting to try and get Congress or some kind of rule at FDA passed on menthol. I think they pretty much know they're, they're the near future, they are not gonna get any kind of flavor rule through. So they're just pushing it as far as they can into the future. To game a chicken with the industry. Yes, and I, they're, you know, they know that they're gonna get sued and they're trying to, I think they're trying to 
they're trying to use their resources as efficiently as they can. So they're trying to deal with lawsuits as they come, kind of like they're dealing with applications as they come. Uh, it's super inefficient, but I think it's the best that they think they can do under the given circumstances. Now, some vaping companies have one stays in court, allowing them to stay on the market while the legal uh, process is unfolding around the marketing denial orders. Is there much hope there for these court cases to deliver some satisfaction for the industry? I think there've already been a few judgments that have been, you know, uh, pretty encouraging, where you have judges, for example, saying this is this is a switcheroo. The FDA told the industry, you don't need to do certain things. And then they deny their applications for not doing those things. For example, for, for not doing uh, long-ranging studies specifically on their product, instead of saying, well, here's a product that's very similar, and here are the studies that have been done on that product, you know, consumer behavioral studies. And then the FDA says, well, no, you need one specifically for your product in your flavor in exactly that amount of nicotine. So we're denying it. And you have a judge saying, that's a switcheroo. You can't do that. You can't tell companies, you can't tell the industry one thing and then deny their applications for something you told them they didn't need to do. I think that's encouraging that you have a few judges out there, kind of depends, you know, judges are can be a toss of the coin. But you have judges who are looking at this from a pragmatic, not slightly less political, let's say, um, lens. And they're saying this, this is obviously the FDA is trying to do something squirrely. They're trying to get away with something. And a few judges out there are going to say, you, you don't get to do that. Uh, so I, I think that's encouraging, but it's such a long process, the process of appeals. And in the meantime, we have this instability. You have an entire industry holding on and waiting. And a lot of companies, except for the very biggest, can't hold on forever. It's true. And I guess that's where the game of chicken uh, comes in. So FDA then appears to have consciously tried to play dirty. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, whatever the reasons are, whatever FDA wants to do, I think their hands are sort of tied in certain ways, uh, politically and in terms of regulation, what they can actually do legally, and then what they want to do, and then what people are telling them they need to do. And so they're just trying to balance everything and figure out, for example, how can we you know, there's, let's say maybe a hundred people. And I think that's, I think that's an overestimate. I think there's a hundred people working on the PMTA applications and they're looking at millions of applications. Some of them are thousands of pages long. Uh, you know, they're saying we expected to get 40 of these for over five years. We never expected to have this many. We just legitimately cannot review that many. So they're trying to find excuses that they can legally use to wipe off as many of those applications as they can, to get them off of their plate as fast as they can so that they can focus on the big ones like Juul. Michelle, there was some good news, if you could call it that, and that was the demise of the Biden vape tax. What was the scuttlebutt in Washington? Did this register as a loss for the Democrats? No, it didn't register as a loss. It would have been a win. You know, if, if it had gotten through, it, and so this usually happens with big omnibus spending bills. Everyone tries to get all their little, you know, their little pet projects through so that when it gets through, they can go home and say, look what I did. If something doesn't get through, usually because it becomes too controversial, you know, a lot of people in politics will put things in there specifically so they can be taken out. So they can say, look, I'm making a deal. I'm compromising. I'll take it out. Uh, a lot of them, they just put it in there kind of hoping no one will notice. But the minute somebody notices, which, you know, everybody who is either a user of these products or was interested from a scientific public health uh, perspective, noticed it, called attention to it. There were news stories. So it became too controversial and it was an easy thing to take out. It was an easy thing to take out. I don't think anybody felt pain over it. I think I'm sure 
you know, the campaign for tobacco for kids wagged a few fingers in the media, but I doubt they said anything even to the members of Congress themselves because those are their friends. They're going to need them down the line. So it wasn't terribly controversial. It would have been horrible had it gotten through, but nobody's hurting because it did. Is there much buzz in the Capitol right now in terms of lobbying efforts against vaping? No, I mean, it's kind of the same hum as it's been for a long time. If anything, it's kind of dipped a little bit. And I think that's probably a product of other things becoming slightly more important. The pandemic has made other issues more important. The issue of drugs has kind of taken center stage. The issue of cannabis has taken center stage. I think um, a lot of the health groups who've been involved in the conversation are kind of focused on other things at the moment. You know, Campaign for Tobacco Kids will always be focused on this issue. That's their, you know, that's their bread and butter. But and they're very powerful. Don't get me wrong. But I think even, you know, even Matt Myers is kind of focused a little bit on trying to get his foot in the door on the drugs issue with Bloomberg giving so much money there. He seems to be kind of trying to worm his way into that issue as well. So everything is clouded in the U.S. by the deeming regulations, which FDA used to gain regulatory control over nicotine vapes. For a year or so, it appeared the industry may have found a win with the use of synthetic nicotine. But that's now over. What happened to synthetic nicotine and why is it no longer an option? After it became clear that the FDA was going to just be denying products that they weren't, you know, if ever going to prove flavored e-cigarette products, you know, non-tobacco flavored, that it was going to take years for them to do that. The industry kind of looked around and said, well, what can we do? You know, if we don't just want to be completely illegal, what can we do? And there was this one thing, synthetic, synthetic nicotine, because um, the Tobacco Control Act, which gave FDA the power to regulate tobacco, only gives them power over tobacco and products derived from tobacco. So if you have a lab-produced molecule of nicotine, that is not derived from tobacco. So some companies were hoping they could use this as a loophole to evade FDA regulation. Now, and that's how this, um, the closing the loophole, that's what it was sold as in the omnibus spending bill, this idea that we will just add an amendment to the Tobacco Control Act, giving FDA the power to regulate synthetic nicotine as well. Of course, the timeline that they gave FDA, I think it's something like 120 days from the day that that passed, which was a month ago, two months ago, um, companies who use synthetic nicotine would have to apply for and receive approval from the FDA. Uh, FDA itself has said it takes six months to compile an application, uh, an acceptable application for them to even review. That is, that's a ban. That is what it is. It's a ban. And, you know, people in Congress sold this as a huge win. We're trying to hold the e-cigarette companies are trying to evade regulation. And one of the things that I wrote recently was they're not trying to evade regulation. They want to be regulated, but only if it's reasonable, only if it's possible. The industry is looking around saying, yeah, you have these regulations, but the, the signals that you've been sending to us is that unless we are R.J. Reynolds or maybe Philip Morris, this, this process is closed to us. You are never going to allow us to get onto the market in a legal way. So we are now looking for another way to go about it. They would have never had to close the loophole. No company would have used synthetic nicotine. It's just more expensive. They wouldn't have done it if they truly believed in the process that exists, if they believed that the process was viable for them. But, you know, the government thinks that we just issue edicts. Everyone has to obey. That's the way it works. It's not the way it works. People have to believe. You have to have faith that the regulatory system is actually open to them, that it can work for them. Otherwise, they're just going to ignore it. So what do you think is going to happen next then for the industry? Well, I think synthetic nicotine is going to go. The FDA will either just, you know, 
they will not approve any synthetic nicotine products. Uh, just There's just not enough time to do that. So that's going to be out the window. I think a few companies will continue to hold on. The vape shops will continue to hold on some of them. There will be more closures. I think if they can diversify, and this is unfortunate too, a lot of vape shops are having to diversify what they sell. So they're having to sell combustible tobacco products. Or if they can get a license in the States where it's legal, they can sell you know, cannabis products. And that's one way that they can hold on. Uh, and then I think over time, we're going to see what we're already starting to see, which is an enormous illicit market. You know, all of the supply chains exist for other drugs. All of the old cannabis supply chains still exist. All of the tobacco bootlegging supply chains exist. They are just going to, it's an opportunity. There's no reason why they wouldn't take the opportunity and simply start moving e-cigarettes through that same, through those same channels. So we're going to see, a, you know, we, hopefully we won't see any type of true e-valley for e-cigarettes. Hopefully the market can, can keep itself and, you know, the illicit market can kind of self-regulate and not have uh, tainted products, but we're going to see more coming from China and other countries. We're going to see more coming from maybe Canada, maybe Mexico, um, unfortunately. And then we're going to get a lot of news stories about how horrible uh, the illegal vapes market is and how many kids have access to vapes through the illicit market. Hopefully at that point, it'll be an opportunity for us, for people in the public health community to say, this is a problem that you created and here's how we solve it. And maybe, maybe by then some people will start to listen. And what would that fix be? I guess we're almost back to the start and it looks like it's a legislative fix, isn't it? It's a legislative, you know, if there was a supportive White House, uh, if there was a supportive Congress that was really interested in fixing these problems, then it, it wouldn't be difficult to do. There are a million proposals that have been around for a long time, pretty much even before the, the, the Tobacco Control Act was passed in 2009. Uh, that act was outdated before it was ever signed. And somebody needs to go back and say, look, set standards for products. You know, these are the thresholds of the ingredients that can be in these products. If they're in those thresholds, they're safe, rubber stamp approved. You know, you have to register with us so we know what you're selling and you have to have the right labeling and you have to have the right marketing and all of that, but otherwise safe. It's exactly like it is with cannabis. If you want to deal with the illicit market, if you want to make sure that people have access to safe regulated products, you have to have a market that actually allows for that, that gives consumers what they want. So somebody in Congress, people in the White House are going to have to get it through their thick heads that if you truly want to deal with this problem, you need to allow the FDA to institute saner rules that the marketplace can work with. Otherwise, the black marketplace will do it for you. The black market is one of the freest markets there is. You know, wherever wherever free markets are restricted, the illicit market will take up the slack. They are more than happy to take your money.